So the scripture this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you, with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice in me. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Dean. Dwight Moody said, a good example is far better than a good precept. And I believe that statement is true. Good examples challenge us to raise the bar. Good examples can help us improve our service and become better people. But that is as far as it goes. The problem is that a good example can show us But a good example cannot empower us to accomplish the same aims. To do what we need is, what we need is, to do that, what we need is more than an example on the outside. We need power on the inside. So a good example requires more than just a good example. Some of you know that Julie and I, uh, try to work out in the gym three days a week. We don't always get that done. But there's a young man, a friend, that's often in the gym at the same time we are. He was a high school quarterback for Longmont. And according to people who know, he was really good, maybe one of the best that Longmont's ever produced. But he was not particularly interested in going to college, and so he quit playing football after high school graduation. But now at this point in his life, he has a desire to play again. And he does these incredibly intense workouts in preparation for tryouts that that the pros hold from time to time. I mean really intense workouts. His dream is to get a spot on an NFL roster or, or with a Canadian football team. And, uh, you know, we've watched him in action. He has a good arm, and he's got quick feet, and we're told he has good decision-making skills. But he also has this, what you might call a power inside, the drive, the commitment, and the determination to improve those skills and raise his conditioning to the highest possible level so that he has the best possible chance of being picked up by a team. So, do you think that someone with equal natural ability, but without the power inside to develop those skills and improve their conditioning, would have the same potential for getting on a roster as our friend does. 
Yeah, I don't think so. See, both our friend and his competitors may have good examples of what it means to be a quality professional quarterback in the pros that they admire and seek to emulate, but without the power inside to do the necessary work, they will never be pro quarterbacks themselves. Make sense? In the preceding verses to what the passage that Dean read for us today, the Apostle Paul encourages the Philippians to be humble in their relationships with one another and then tells them that they should have the same attitude as Jesus Christ himself had, who, as we saw last week, it said, emptied himself, humbled himself, and sacrificed himself. Not last week, but the week before, I guess. So, the Apostle Paul has shown us Jesus Christ as the perfect example, an example of humility and servanthood. And we would read that and agree with it, but how do we go about doing the same? Well, the answer from a human point is, viewpoint is we can't do the same. But the answer from a biblical viewpoint is we can, but not in our own strength. And the key is in verse 13 of the passage that Dean read today, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good will, to his good purpose. Now that's good news. We need the help. But it's not merely a matter of letting God do his thing. We have a part in this process too. Verse 12, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, what's our job? Well, Paul begins by saying, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed. That's our first job. Obedience. Think about it. Obedience is at the very core of our relationship with God. We cannot please him unless we obey him. We show, we, lo- we show him we love him by obeying him. We show, we show that well, we cannot please him unless we obey him. Correct? We cannot have a, a relationship with God unless we obey him. In the Old and New Testament, we find the words obedience, obey, or obeyed used 178 times in direct reference to God. What I mean by that is those terms are used any place where it speaks directly about obedience to God, his word, his commands, or his instructions. But that doesn't include the places where it talks about obeying the king or obeying the prophet or anyone else. These are references directly relating to obedience to God. <clears throat> A couple of examples. Leviticus 18.5. It says, Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. Now you know, um, back in Leviticus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, back in the Old Testament, the Exodus, the people of Israel had a tough, tough time with this deal here. Obedience to God. They messed up time after time after time. I was talking to Dean Claus in my office here recently, and I was saying, you know, it scares me to think what I would have done had I lived then. 
Would Abner join the crowd who bowed down before the golden calf when Moses didn't come back down the mountain when I thought he should? Would I have looked to the serpent on the pole? I don't know. It scares me to think about it. And they were disobedient time after time after time. We have some help now to be obedient that they didn't have because it tells us that the Holy Spirit lives within us. And we'll talk about that a little more in just a moment. In John 14, 3, jumping to the New Testament, Jesus said, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. <clears throat> Obedience is a key. Lee Strobel in God's, in his book, God's Outrageous Claims said this, if two angels in heaven were given assignments by God at the same time, one of them to go and rule over the greatest nation on the earth, and the other to go sweep the streets of the dirtiest village, each angel would be completely indifferent as to which one got which assignment. It simply wouldn't matter to them. Why? Because the real joy lies in being obedient to God. For a Christ follower, the important thing isn't what God has us doing. The important thing is that we're doing what God wants us to do. And all the people excitedly said, yeah, that's right. Remember, remember Eric Little, um, Chariots of Fire, missionary to China? He said, one word stands out from all others as the key to knowing God to having his peace and assurance in your life, it is obedience. Oh, man. Remember the words of the hymn, Trust and Obey, so there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That is absolutely true. When Paul says to continue working out your salvation, the first thing he's talking about is obedience. But I want to expand a little more on the continue working idea. Well, first of all, notice this. Paul does not say work for your salvation, but rather work out your salvation. The Bible is very clear and teaches that we are not saved by our works, but by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Listen, if we could be good enough, do enough good things to, to be saved, then Jesus needn't have come. But we are not saved by works. We are not saved to do, but we should do, Right? We're not just saved because we do, but we should do. Does that make sense? All right. Some, you know, there are those out there that have this belief. There's the scales that God will look at someday when we stand before Him. And if we've done enough good things to outweigh the bad things over here, we're good to go. We've got our ticket in. But that's not how it works, is it? It's my faith in Jesus Christ and then the good works that flow out of that. So Paul says here we are to work out, not work for, that will work out our salvation. The Greek word translated work out means to bring about or carry out something. 
We are saved by faith in Jesus and his blood on the cross. But we cannot throw it in neutral and coast from that point on. It's like, well, God did it for me. I'm good to go. It requires an investment. Work on our part. We are to practice the things the Bible teaches. What it means to love God, to love others, to live holy lives. To, to live the life of servanthood, following the example of Jesus himself that Paul cites in the previous verses that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. It is remaining committed to the fellowship of believers and gathering for worship. It is investing our lives in those things that through the power of the Holy Spirit will develop Christ-likeness in us. It's obedience. So, as we strive to become more like Jesus, we are to do so then, Paul says, I think it's kind of interesting, work out your your salvation with fear and trembling. That's kind of the picture you get, isn't it, when you see those words. Because what it does, it kind of takes us back to the Old Testament where I I made reference to earlier. And, you know, who? Um, well, we kind of think of it in this terms, in these terms, as used to, to signify being afraid of the mighty power of God's wrath to correct his people like he did in the Exodus. Snakes that come and bite you, plagues that went through the people. There were a couple of times when God said to Moses, Stand back, I'm going to take them all out. I'm sick of this. And Moses and Aaron interceded for them, and the people were saved. And so that's our tendency is to think, I think, when when we talk about fear and trembling, that's the picture we get. We've been out of line. What's God going to do to us now? But it's not this slavish terror. For the spirit we have received does not make us slaves so that we live in fear. Romans 8.15 But that we should serve him with reverence and awe and awareness of our weakness and our desperate need to receive his strength. Fear and trembling is an attitude that says, I want to honor God in my decisions regardless of my circumstances that he might be glorified not living in some kind of fright all the time or terror of what God might do to you if you step out of line in some way. So that's our job. We're to be obedient. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But God has a job too. It refers to that in verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God's job to give us the desire and power to do his will. A five-year-old boy and his mother went to visit a friend who was very pregnant with his first child. And noticing, noticing that, the little boy was staring at her belly. She allowed him to place his hand on her belly and feel the baby kick. And his face lit up and he said, how does the baby get out of there? Well, she wanted to keep it simple, so she said, the doctor will help. And his eyes widened in amazement as he said, you've got a doctor in there too? 
Every Christian has an inside helper. God has placed His Spirit within us. That's why we refer to the Spirit as the helper. We need help, don't we? God is at work. That's what the Scripture says. It is God who works. God is at work. The Greek word is like energy. Energeo. To energize our working out of our salvation. And what is God working to produce? In us, two things. The will. In other words, that is the purpose, the drive, the determination, and the action. to, To act, to accomplish, to carry through on. God is producing in us the desire and the determination to do something. And that is to fulfill his good purpose. First, he wants us, he, he changes our want to, and second, he provides the power to obey. So this verse tells us that God gives both the will and the ability to do what he commands. Because that's what the people in the Old Testament did not have. The Holy Spirit did not live within them. And yet today we live under the new covenant. We live because the Holy Spirit has come and we now have within us the power to will and to act according to God's good purpose. Are you grateful for that? I am. And then it's interesting, Paul goes on to say, there's a couple of behaviors you need to avoid here. Grumbling and disputing. Here he says, complaining or arguing. Human beings tend to be complainers even in the best of circumstances. It's unfortunate, but it's true. Remember, again, the Israelites during the time of Moses, when they were slaves in Egypt, they complained. When they were delivered from slavery and pursued by the Egyptians, they complained. They complained when they had no meat. When food from heaven was provided for them, they still complained. They're getting sick of this manna. They complained that they had no water. They complained about the leadership of Moses. And if you read the account of Exodus, you will find that God's patience was tested because of the complaining of the Israelites. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, there were a couple of times when God was ready to do away with them and start with someone new. Neil Bowen, who is a motivational speaker and founder of a complaint-free world, he's the world's leading expert on complaining, so it says on his website, he said this, Complaining is like bad breath. You notice it when it comes out of somebody else's mouth, but not your own. If anyone should be positive and grateful, it is followers of Jesus Christ. The scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So, we should not be complainers. Or grumblers. That's actually the word that's used in most translations, especially when you go back to the time of Moses. They grumbled. That word even sounds like it 
doesn't it? I mean, grumbling sounds like grumbling. I guess. So, avoid it. Don't live that way. When you catch yourself doing it, stop. And then he, he says, don't grumble or don't complain. Avoid disputing or arguing. And Paul may have mentioned this because later in this same book, in the book of Philippians, he'll talk about an issue that had arisen between two of the women in the church. And he asked the folks there to deal with that issue. Get these ladies to agree with one another again is what basically what he says. But there's a real danger when disputes arise that are not properly dealt with. This can lead to anger, to bitterness, to unforgiveness, to broken relationships. And those kind of things can spread in a church body. People take sides. Divisions develop. Those gaps continue to widen. And then there's a split. And when that happens, those involved have dishonored God and damaged the reputation of the church and, and the whole Christian community. So Paul said, don't be a grumbler, avoid argument. And by the way, we're going to do both sometimes. Admit it, aren't we? I do. Like traffic. So why do we never go to Denver? <laughs> why in the world did traffic stop? Do you ever do that? No, you probably don't. I mean, does it? So, and arguing. And, and we're going to do that. We're going to have differences of opinion. But listen, in the body of Christ, they're right way. You know what? Sometimes we have to agree to, dis- to disagree, don't we? We're just going to have a different point of view from the person that we're on the other side of this issue with. And that's okay. As long as the goal is the same, right? So, avoid that. Do everything without complaining. Boy, that covers a lot of territory. Do everything without complaining or arguing. So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. That's takes you for the first through the first part of verse 16. So Paul's talking now about the impact that he wanted them to make, that we are to make. What's the impact we're to make? Well, we're to shine like stars in the dark world. We're to shine like stars in the dark world. The, the Apostle Paul uses three key words here to describe how we should live as Christians, kind of as opposed to the grumbling, complaining thing. First of all, he says we're to be blameless, above reproach. First Peter 2.12 Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We live above reproach. He says be pure. The Greek word means without any mixture of deceit, without any foreign material. It is about pure motives. It's a matter of the heart. It's about, it is about love that is sincere. So be blameless, be pure, be faultless. This word describes what we are to be like in the sight of God because we'll never be faultless in the sight of one another, will we? 
But because of Jesus Christ, God can see us as faultless. It was, it was used in particular in connection with sacrifices offered on the altar of God. Remember, and we're reading in our daily Bibles, we're right now in the part of the Old Testament in the first five books where it talks about all the sacrifices they have to make. Oh my goodness. And it all, and the instruction is all of these things that you bring, the, the animals that the, the bulls, the goats, the sheep, whatever, they had to be spotless, without blemish. You brought the very best, the perfect. It needed to cost you something. You couldn't go out and grab the one that had been, you know, chewed by the dogs or had a limp or whatever. You had to go out and, and, and take from the flock or the herd the very best. That Those were spotless. You know the ones that you would take to the fair to show off? Those are the ones that got sacrificed. And that's what Faultless talks about. It was used in particular. In particular, in connection with sacrifices offered on the altar of God, we must live in such a way that we can be offered to God like an unblemished living sacrifice. I like the living part. I've said that before. And we do this. We are blameless. We are pure. We are faultless in a crooked and depraved generation. That's what Paul said about the generation they were living. We live in a fallen world that is morally and spiritually bankrupt from what God's intentional, what original intention was. And so God calls us to live in a way that is noticeably different. We are called to a higher standard. And what happens when we live up to that standard? Well, we noticed. It makes, I mean, it's that thing about being a peculiar people. That doesn't mean an oddball. That means you just live differently than many of the folks in the world around you. The world notices. And Paul says then, we shine like stars when we do that. And he says, when we shine like stars, then we're able to hold forth the word of life. We will make an impact on the world when we live lives that are visibly, observably, measurably, noticeably, and obviously different from the people around us. We are to be different to make a difference. Our values are to set us apart from the surrounding culture. And when that happens, people will see the way we live. They will notice the difference. The light of Christ will be seen in us. And when they ask for the reason that we live the way we live, we can hold out the word of life to them. It opens doors. And then Paul kind of shifts gears here. Verse 16, as you hold out the word of life, and then he says, In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, but even as I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. What's he talking about? Well, I see this as a spiritual mentor's hope. A spiritual mentor's hope. I want my investment in your lives to pay off. 
I, I think that's what every pastor says. I think that's what every Sunday school teacher, small group Bible study leader hopes for. I want my investment in your lives to pay off. Any one of us who invests our life in the life of another, to mentor or disciple or teach, want to know that we have made a difference in that person's life. We want to see growth. We want to see positive, godly change. We want to see them go into deeper relationship with Jesus. We want to see them walking in obedience to the word. Is, are those the kind of things we want? We want to know that we have made a difference in that person's life. Paul wanted to know that he had made a difference through his investment in the Philippian church. He had made a difference in their lives, in the way they lived, in the way they followed Jesus, in their commitment to him. <clears throat> and Paul here is saying with this stuff about being poured out like a drink offering, what he's saying is, even if I end up losing my life for you, it won't matter to me as long as you live for Christ. Wow. What a statement. <clears throat> really, that statement is at the bottom line of Christian service, and we probably all agree with it in theory, but how many of us can truly say that it doesn't matter whether we live or die so long as the people we know follow Jesus? And yet that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He did not know what the future held for him at this point in a Roman prison. Many of you know the name of Jim Elliott, the missionary in Ecuador, South America. He, along with four other young missionaries, wanted to reach a tribe of Indians that lived in the Amazon jungle, I believe it was the Aka Indians. The tribe was known for its violence, so no one ventured into their territory. <clears throat> but they were people for whom Jesus had died. And these men were impelled to share the gospel with these people. After months of strategic plan planning, the five felt the time was right to make face-to-face -face contact with the Indians. So they landed on a sandbar in, these, in, the, in, in this airplane, and they made contact, but it all went wrong on January 8, 1956, and Jim Elliott, Nate Sane, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, and Roger, Roger Udarian were speared to death on that sandbar called Palm Beach on the Carrere River in Ecuador. <clears throat> After his death, an entry was found in Jim Elliott's diary. <clears throat> and it said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott would say, Amen to the Apostle Paul's statement. Even if I end up losing my life for you, it won't matter to me as long as you live for Christ. Wow. So here's a passage where Paul's telling us, we work. We work. We've got some investment in this thing. There's things that we have to do. And the thing that, that encompasses what we have to do, the work we do is obedience. And you can break that down into a lot of subcategories, but that's it. That's our work, obedience. And then God works in us. God works in us to give us the will and the power to do what he calls us to do, to fulfill his, to fulfill his good purposes. And then he says, here's how I want you to behave while you do these things. First of all, 
Don't be a grumbler and don't be an arguer. <clears throat> and here are the things you should do. You need to live a, live a blameless, pure, and faultless life. And but when you do that, it's going to catch the attention of people around you because you're going to live differently than most people do. And when that happens, it's going to open a door of opportunity for you to hold out the word of life. And Paul's saying, that will make me happy because then I know that my investment in you is paying off. And the world will be changed. Because this is a domino effect. That I'm invested in you, you'll invest in others, who will invest in others, who will invest in others. And we're here today, aren't we? It started back there, back then, with those people. The Apostle Paul and the missionary work he did. And may we be investors in the lives of others so that domino effect continues to be carried on. Amen? Father, we thank you today for the example of Paul. And I'm not saying in that that we should be Paul followers because Paul said this, follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that's what we need to do. That's who we need to look to. The example of Jesus Christ. And understand, Lord God, you do work in us to accomplish your good purposes. We have some work to do, too. It's the work of obedience. It's the work of following hard after you. Doing what you tell us to do. Saying yes. You give us an order. And then to live our lives in such a way that the world around us will take notice. And say there's something positively, winsomely different about these people, about this person. And in that, we we will shine like stars in the universe. And we'll have the opportunity then to hold up the word of life. And that domino effect will continue to go on. As people have invested in us. We invest in others. Thank you, God, for that call on our lives, for the opportunity to be involved in the eternal work of the kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now bless us today as we go with your presence, with your grace, and your peace, we ask in Jesus' strong name. Amen. But thank you for being here today. God bless you as you go this morning. Thank you.